Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket, a podcast brought to you by Log Rocket. Log Rocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it for free at logrocket.com today. My name is Paul, and joined with us is Ryland Goldstein. He's the head of product over at Temporal. And we've actually had some folks on, including Ryland from Temporal last year. But we're going to be digging back into the product a little bit and talking about some of the new features that have come out. Welcome to the podcast, Ryland. It's exciting to have you. I'm super happy to be back again, Paul. It's, it's a great it's a great podcast and I'm really happy when good podcasts want me on. When the bad podcasts want you on, that's only lightly exciting. It's nice to be wanted. That's a good thing. Yeah, it is. It is. How long have you been head of product, Ryland? A little over three years now, actually. So I joined Temporal in April of 2020 and pretty much immediately was head of product, was actually head of developer experience for a short stint there and then transitioned it ahead of product pretty quickly. So yeah, it's like three years and some change now. At three years, you're going to have a lot of perspective. You're a good guest to have on the show and really crack into the nut of what Temporal is because we've had other guests come on the show and talk about, oh, under the hood, we use this big thing. We use this like, we use a sledgehammer. Let me tell you, we use this thing called temporal and we go ah we've had them on here before okay so it might seem like it has a use case all over the map and that's because it really is an ergonomic tool so for those who aren't familiar can you start to intro us into what is temporal at a high level Temporal is a, a platform for developers to build uh, like highly reliable and scalable applications. And so there's this concept in computer science of durability, which basically means that like when something loses power or is cut off from a network, that the data and the things that you've stately, statefully stored with it remain there and are safe. And so Temporal is like foundationally built on this concept of durable execution, which combines that basic concept of durability with the concept of a computer programming program executing and moving forward. And so the idea is that you want to have this computer program that, you know, is moving forward and it's progressing. But if at any point in time the network cuts out or the server the program is running on fails, the program is able to continue on as if, you know, nothing had happened, as if when the light switch got turned off, all the state that was relevant for the application was stored somewhere and ensured to be safe. It's it, it, Could I say I'm like thinking about breaking down my program, no matter what, language it's in if it's in the supported because you guys it's supported language right i have to use a supported sdk to run on temporal it's, they're they're vast but provided i use a supported language it's like breaking it down into atomic steps that you guys keep track of yeah, absolutely. The nuance there is that we're not doing it every line of, of your code. Um, that's like a lot of people when they first see Temporal and they understand how it works at a high level. They sort of assume, oh, every line of code you're breaking and sending to your server or something like that. In reality, we've just realized over a long period of time that there's these very specific points in a executing program's life cycle where things are being done statefully in a way that can't be reproduced. And so a great example is you write a piece of code that calls to an external server over HTTP there's a point where like your server itself can't just reconstruct the arbitrary response of another server because it's not that server. And so you need to store that somewhere because if that other server is down or returns something different in the future, your program will act differently than you intended it to. And these specific points, like these inflection points in your code where stateful things happen, 
Temporal has been designed to automatically capture those stateful events and send them to the server, which stores them durably in, in fault-tolerant fashion. And that way, if your application crashes at some point in the future, we can reconstruct its state. Uh, and so, you know, going back to what you originally asked, we, we do have to do this at a language, a per language level. And we actually kind of make a unique choice there where a lot of companies that provide an API and they want to provide a language experience in a bunch of different languages, they tend to write these SDKs, which amount to being wrappers around an HTTP API or a gRPC API. And other than the fact that it's in Go or it's in Python, it doesn't really look like a Go API or Go SDK. It looks just this products API that has been surfaced into Go. And so with Temporal, we chose a very different route, which is we do things very idiomatically. And if there's some core primitive of the Temporal platform that says you can have a concurrency or a parallelism in a workflow, that means we need to go and ask ourselves for every language we support, what does it mean for a developer to use concurrency within Golang? What would be the intuitive and, and kind of natural way that they expect that? And like then we have to kind of surface that experience in that, that fashion so it stays idiomatic and true to what developers expect. And so we do that for, for every language we support. And so there's quite a bit of work uh, and a really brilliant team behind making sure that our SDK experience um, stays top notch. And you can see that when you go to the temporal docs, the docs between even the Go SDK and the TypeScript SDK, the two that I have just very lightly perused, like they're vastly different. And at first I was scared because I was just like, oh crap. Because you're used to looking at, you're used to looking at an SDK that's just a wrap around an API. I feel like that might be the status quo. So when I'm looking at SDKs and they're wildly different, I'm like, did the team just pivot? But what you're telling me here is really driving home the ethos of Temporal, which is we wanted to make it the best it could be. So you made it idiomatically in line with the language and focused in on that language. The, yeah. So the specific thing, TypeScript and Go are a great example because they don't just represent the idiomatic approach we take to each language, but it also sort of represents the evolution of the way that we think about designing these language experiences in general. When I joined Temporal, there was only two languages that we had support for, which were Go and Java. And so one of the first things that I pushed for when I joined the company was we need to add a new language. And specifically, I felt TypeScript and JavaScript were like the place that development trends were going in general, and we could get a lot of users and a lot more growth from that language specifically. And so one of the things at the last company, I started a company before Temporal, and we were trying to build a competitor to AWS Lambda. And so one of the things that we had spent a lot of time, like what I had been tasked with looking into very early on was like these alternatives to container-based isolation. You had virtual machines, and eventually now everyone started running things in Docker containers. And there was this idea that if you could have like an isolation mechanism that was much cheaper than like a, a Docker container, it could be really important for like a cloud business's growth and ability to have good margins because we could run all this stuff in a lot higher scale than you would be able to do with containers. And so unfortunately, that didn't pan out that sort of direction. But the research had me focus on this concept within V8, which is Chrome's JavaScript engine, the thing they use to browse the internet. And in, in V8, there's this concept of isolates, which are like a mechanism that this JavaScript engine provides for running a piece of isolated JavaScript code that is totally sandboxed from everything else. And this is the way that like tabs work in your browser, right? Why you can't just have one tab maliciously take over another tab or something like that. And so from this work that I'd done before I joined Temporal, I knew about this isolation mechanism. It's like a virtual machine, for lack of a better way of putting it. And so when I showed up at Temporal, like our CEO, Max, he had been very enthusiastic about WebAssembly because we have this kind of requirement in Temporal that developers need to understand determinism and item potency, and those are very scary concepts. And so when you're programming, for example, in our Go SDK, these are like very in-your-face things that you need to be aware of. Well, if I write this line of code, 
maybe my ID won't tell me it's wrong or anything, but because it's temporal, it's not against the or it's against the rules, and this is going to cause my application to run into issues. And so, because of this like V8 isolate concept that's part of this Chrome JavaScript engine, I sort of realized that even though our CEO thought WebAssembly would be the solution for solving all these determinism problems, like WebAssembly was not in a place at that time to be practically useful to us. But specifically for JavaScript, this V8 thing did a lot of the stuff we were hoping WebAssembly would, and it was available and it was widely adopted and part of, of Node.js as an example. And so that's what I pushed. And like eventually we ended up hiring one of the most brilliant engineers I know and like a best friend of mine who ended up building our TypeScript SDK on top of this V8 engine, which is like the first time we'd ever tried something like this. And the reason I say all this is that the outcome, like the reason it's so exciting is that when you program with TypeScript and Temporal, you don't actually have to think about determinism at all. We have actually created an environment where it's impossible to write non-deterministic code, like the compiler, for lack of a better way of describing it, actually won't let you do it. And we actually fundamentally remove that whole class of concerns and things that you have to worry about traditionally as a Temporal developer as part of this TypeScript SDK. And so now when we've started adding even new languages after TypeScript, this has really inspired us and really made it hard for us to ever want to add a new language that it doesn't have these capabilities and doesn't just solve this whole class of problems for our users. There's been quite a bit of evolution even within the way that we develop these SDKs idiomatically in the last few years. That's fascinating. So you tried to look at WebAssembly and it was, the idea was there, the landscape wasn't, but there was something, so it was the V8 isolates and that really pushed you guys in that direction. So when you draw that, like, that winning flag, you're like, you don't even have to think about determinism. Really, like what? What is determinism, Ryland? If we were to like, I don't want. I don't want to read the amazing, by the way, documentation, which is like paragraphs long on the site. Like determinism in my code. What does that mean? It's a very uh, existential or philosophical concept, almost. So like, uh, I know we're getting at like the halting problem here, or even like hearkening to religion and predeterminism and all of that stuff. So I think it's is rightfully scary to a lot of people. Welcome to philosophy with Ryland. Yeah, I don't know if you'd want to stay tuned for that one. <laughs> So yeah, I think determinism, it's, it sounds really scary, but I think when it really comes down to it, it's a pretty straightforward concept, which is that there are certain types of code that you can run that no matter how many times you run them, they'll produce the same output. And there's other types of code where you can run them one time and get one thing and run them another time and get a, a different thing, even though you probably passed in the same variables or everything about your configuration when you called it was the same. And so that's really the difference between determinism and non-determinism. I think one thing that, you know, maybe it helps me because I'm like someone who spends a lot of time thinking about computer science and temporal, but, you know, math, there's functions. And every single function that you can write in math is deterministic. And the reason why that's like true is that, well, you can write it down on a piece of paper. And if you can write it down on a piece of paper and I give it to someone else, there's no way that I can like influence that the outcome of that function is going to be different. Like once I write it down, it's hard coded. And so I think that's a decent way to think about it, which is like anything that's math related and is inherently deterministic. There's no randomness, right? There's no chance that part of a math function fails or that like it returns a different number than it did before. Everything is very explicit and put out in front of you. And for me, that's the easiest way to understand what is and isn't deterministic. I go and think, could I write it down on a piece of paper and hand solve it? And if you can't, then it's probably not deterministic. I, I love the piece of paper thing. I've been trying to wrap my head around it, thinking like, like from the React point of view, is there a side effect that I need to pay attention to here in my use effect and in, in my state cycle? But the piece of paper thing is really neat because that's like material. 
and it sits in my head real nice. I really like that. So what if somebody is listening to this and they say, all right, I'm writing a function. And, well, I write a lot of functions and it's a CLI, right? And you give some input and you give some output. They could give a different input every time. That's a non-deterministic piece of code, right? So no, so that's going to mention that's like a key facet of determinism is that for the same inputs that you always get the same outputs, right? And just to follow that through with the previous way of framing things, if I write down on a piece of paper, a math function for summing two numbers, I can give two different numbers between executions of that math function. But if I give the same numbers, I always get the same result back. And so that's what inherently makes it deterministic. Obviously, it can be based on the inputs that you get to the code. It's just that only the inputs and what's defined in the code are what matters and nothing external or outside of that function itself. And that sounds like amazing as a developer to be able to say my code is like deterministic and it'll always run. And it sounds like a very difficult, like that's what we engineer for. That's what we want our code to do. And then you're out here heavy slinging saying, hey, you guys, if you're in TypeScript, you don't even need to think about it. And the way you do that is, to my understanding, with some abstractions, right? So we we have some things called workflows and activities and you guys really molded the SDK to force you to code in the right area. And you also, I and before we jump into the section, I also want to think about the compiler because you mentioned, okay, the compiler for the lack of a better term. I know it's not really a compiler, but when people hear that, they might go, oh gosh, there's a compiler. I don't want to deal with that. So yeah, what what's really happening under the hood with your SDK and how it forces you as a developer to sort down these two buckets? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think we'll start with the, the Go example because it doesn't protect you as much. It doesn't protect you almost at all. Uh, the basic idea is that we give you guidance in Go. So like the thing that's really stopping you from not writing or from writing code that's non-deterministic is you when you're a Go developer with Temporal. You have to know that if I'm making a call to um, an HTTP service, that's non-deterministic and I need to put that in an activity, which is sort of our container for non-determinism. And you have to know, for example, if you're doing a sleep in your code, you can't use the language native sleep. You have to use either the temporal sleep or call sleep in an activity. And that way you can encapsulate this non-determinism. And in Go, this is just something that in a few of our other languages that you just have to know the rules about and you have to watch out for. There's various efforts. There's an amazing talk recently that Chad from our SDK team gave about the different approaches we use for helping with non-determinism in our various languages. For Go, as an example, there's not much we can do for you. And one of the things that's really specifically funny about Go is that in Go, there's non-deterministic iteration over a map, which might even sound weird. But basically, if you try to iterate over a map in Go, most people would think that if I call that for loop over a map, it's always going to run the same. But Golang intentionally made a choice that they're not going to keep the iteration order the same between executions of the program. And so it's not even actually legal to use an iterator over a map directly in temporal within a workflow because it actually is a source of it. And so that's one where I remember I ran into that the first time. And it's like, I understood determinism even at that point. And I'm like, yeah, there's this really well understood set of things. And then it was like, oh, apparently because of the way they designed Go, this is one of those set of things that I need to specifically think about. Uh, to contrast that, if we go back to the TypeScript example, when I said compiler, um, that was a bit misleading. Really what's going on is we have this V8 JavaScript engine under the hood. It's essentially providing like a deterministic virtual machine for each of your workflow executions. And so one of the beautiful things about like the concept of a virtual machine is that it's virtualizing all of the underlying like IO and hardware that the computer is actually exposing. And when it comes down to it, pretty much every source of like non-determinism in this world is from IO. It's from having to connect to a hard drive, which is going over some sort of bus and 
that could fail. And you can't guarantee that, you know, a read from disk is always going to work. It's from calling over a network and going over the network card and making a request and that could fail. Or even just things like random number generation, which is based on timing of cycles of the processor, which you can't necessarily count on between any runs of a given program. And the beautiful thing is that because TypeScript V8 surfaces itself as this virtual machine, you can plug in what of what IO you want to be available for the environment of the user when they're writing their code. And basically what we did is we just said none of it's allowed. You you can't do any of these things that you know would typically cause you to create a non-deterministic behavior and we'll just not let the sandbox recognize it. And so it doesn't even let you write the code. Like when you're typing it in, it will just be like, this isn't a valid call from this context. And there's absolutely no way that you can get yourself into trouble. And now, obviously, sometimes it's surprising for people because they're like, why can't I write this code? Normally, you could write that code in any place that you want. And so then they still have to go and read the docs, but at least it doesn't let them foot gun themselves and run it in production and create a problem. They just have to go and do some education before they, they fully grasp what's going on. It feels very, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels akin to a TypeScript compiler when I'm working in VS Code. It's your guiding hand to bring you along and tell you what can be in each area that you're writing. Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're using, God help us, we're using like Webpack and we're doing a lot of stuff like at the transpilation level because we do need to do some fancy stuff in JavaScript to make all of this work. And yeah, it's very similar to like, you know, I will say that myself and Roy, who is the main person behind the SDK, I think we really like TypeScript in terms of the trade-offs it made as a language and the way that it surfaced like a typed experience and having used a bunch of other strongly typed languages. And so I think there was a lot of inspiration that we took for the SDK specifically from TypeScript, which in the world of temporal is a great way of doing things because it makes it even more idiomatic. So yeah, I think that there's a lot of parallels between the way TypeScript itself works and the way that we've implemented these things in TypeScript. You're speaking to the right audience here. I mean, we're, we're in a web development podcast talking about lots of there's probably majority TypeScript developers like listening to this that are probably like yes Ryland you're speaking my language man so <laughs> you were definitely correct about assuming that you were going to bring in a big developer base with that one yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, in all fairness, I have a Stack Overflow blog post where I'm like, the article is uh, the best ways to write modern JavaScript and the number one step is write TypeScript instead. So, uh. I mean, looking back, I feel like it'd be crazy to not use TypeScript and because it, it's all about reducing your errors, reducing the amount of work you want to do. And Ryland, I'd love to step into some of the cool features that not only I've seen you put videos about on YouTube about temporal and like schedules, for example. That's super exciting. Before we do that, I just want to talk to our audience of web developers listening and remind everybody that this podcast is brought to you by LogRocket. And LogRocket will help you and your software team find errors within your application and surface them quickly using the powers of AI to find patterns that you might not pick up on, error tracking and product analytics. You can spend more time building the app and less time in the console less time where Ryland's team is and like breaking open V8 for us so we don't have to chase as many things down in the future. So head over to logrocket.com today to try it for free. It does sound pretty great. Yeah, it definitely will help you develop against edge cases in ways that like you just didn't think about, which is really neat. And the heat maps are fun to play with, especially. On new features for Temporal, one that I can't wait to talk to you about because it saved me like weeks of programming is the schedules. You've, you guys have had scheduled workflows 
in the past. And now we're looking at the new schedules feature. So I, anybody listening, you're like, what is a scheduled workflow? Is this thing where you could make this determ- this deterministic piece of code, maybe run it on a cron job or something. Now Temporal is coming out with schedules. So Rylan, could you tell us about what was and what is and why it's a big deal? Yeah, schedules is like a very interesting microcosm of temporal in a lot of ways. So the basic idea is that there's this cron concept, which is one of the most prevalent concepts and pieces of technology, at least in my experience as a developer. But I think for most developers, it's true. And cron is is like redheaded stepchild in a sense where you always need it. And it's never like this thing that you think about primarily. It's always like a secondary concern. You realize, oh, wow, we probably need to run something like on a timer. And so there's always places I've worked like some Linux server that you have, like just running some set of your cron jobs that like probably are really important to the business, but you treat it as like this random server that you just maintain for doing this ad hoc cron stuff. And I think there's this very common problem that you need to run things on a schedule. Maybe you need to be doing basic monitoring, pinging a website. There's a million different reasons that you might need it. And it's actually like surprisingly difficult to go and do this in a say professional way today. Outside of hosting your own server and running cron just from like the command line, which then brings a whole set of questions of like, how does that server stay up and what happens if it goes down and is it stateful and like how does the cron behave in those cases and who's going to be watching that and just like doing that in a reliable and trustworthy way is actually a very difficult problem historically and even today I think for most companies and for most developers and so this is something from very early on even before the team left Uber that they had identified as being like a real pain point for developers who are working with distributed systems is that they needed this um, reliable way of running scheduled jobs and running things on a timer. And very early on in the history of the technology, they added this like cron capability to the system, which in all fairness, compared to the other solutions that are out there are probably much better because it's built with temporal. So you know that it's going to be like durably executed, like it's not going to go away if the server crashes, like all of those statefulness questions that you would have to ask about a traditional cron job that you're just running as like a, a process that no longer is holding true, even with our initial solution. And that had always been like a pretty popular feature in the product, even though the like DX around it was severely lacking. It was just solving such a big gap in like the ecosystem and what people needed out of software that people were flocking to it. And I think that from my experience, at least, there's two really major reasons that people adopt Temporal. One is that they need like some sort of general purpose or service orchestration, microservice orchestration, whatever you want to transactions, what something that falls into that group. And then the only other real category that's like top level to me is like people want it for doing crons. The surprising number of people adopt Temporal simply just because they need to solve this durable cron job problem that they have in their company. Uh, And so, you know, as we saw how popular this feature was over the last couple of years, and then realized how actually not great the developer experience was around it for how popular it was, we started feeling like not super great about that. And so we we said to ourselves, there's probably some ways that we could like iteratively get this into a better place, but it's really misaligned with the way that we want this experience to, to happen. And so that's when we decided to rewrite things and produce a fundamentally new version of the experience that we call like scheduled workflows. And so that's something that we started over a year ago. The idea was that from the like mechanical point of view, like a lot of things about the existing solution were great. Uh, but when it came to like the actual APIs and the capabilities and the way that you interact with with it, it was just really lacking and honestly, pretty unusable in in certain cases. Outside of like things that just flat out didn't work with the old solution, it was also missing some capabilities that I feel like make the new one super powerful. 
One example is you have this situation that can happen with a a cron job where you say have it run every 30 minutes and it fires one time and there's some piece of code that starts running and maybe that piece of code takes a pretty long time to finish. 30 minutes later, the cron job is supposed to fire, but the piece of code that it started on the last invocation hasn't finished running yet. So what do you do? So with the previous cron solution, the system made an opinionated choice and you didn't get any say in it and that was just the way the world was. And one of the awesome things that you can do with the new scheduled workflows is you can actually specify the policy for what should happen when an invocation gets fired when an an existing invocation is already running. Should all of them be able to run in parallel? Should it be queued up in a fashion? Should it only allow one to run and the other one simply won't happen? So that's like something that was just like fundamentally possible now that wasn't possible before. And like another example there is there's this concept of a catch-up policy where imagine that you have a cron job set to fire and the temporal server itself goes down. And so a few minutes later, restart your temporal server and now there's this question of there's this cron that was supposed to fire, but the server was down, do we still fire it or not? And so this catch-up policy now also lets you to control the behavior in that case where you can say, oh, I want to fire anything that would have fired in the last five minutes, or I want to fire everything that would have fired, or I don't want to fire anything at all and just pick up where we are now and not think about what we missed before. And so just things like this truly transform the experience and make this like a in my mind, like a world-class like cron solution, durable cron solution on top of that, that most people would probably prefer to use over all the other cron solutions, at least I know of. And I, I think it's interesting when you really highlight these deep dive differences that you just double-clicked on, like specifically like an overlap policy, a catch-up policy, that could be a behemoth to tackle in just a regular cron or if you're reaching for an open source solution does it implement it how does it implement it then how does your sister systems then talk to it having it in one spot is you're right it's so powerful it's fun to play with so was were were schedules if could somebody realistically have made schedules by themselves a bespoke implementation using workflows somehow to then, because under the hood, I guess I'm wondering, does it run on a workflow? The schedule. It does. It does. Okay. It does. Absolutely. It's a great question. This is a big debate that we had at the time when we were trying to design it initially. Initially, the idea was that we would do it in a much more like like bespoke and a specific way and build it into the actual state machines of the system itself in a more integrated fashion. There's still actually some custom state that we have to do with even the way that we we did approach it. But we ended up deciding that we wanted to do it a lot more like the dog food, same way that a user would have to do it. And that meant that we were basically going to be running this workflow to actually manage your scheduled workflow that you define and you set up as a cron job. And so what that means is that within the temporal cluster and the temporal service itself, we actually have to run workers and we have to run these workflows that manage the scheduled executions. Now, in reality, we already did have like workflows that run as part of temporal itself. So that's part of the way the product runs. And so there was already some kind of infrastructure, using that term loosely, set up inside the architecture of the product to allow us to run workflows. And so it wasn't like we had to go and solve that problem in a novel way. But we did have to make some changes and some improvements in, in how all those things work because of how much people want to use scheduled workflows. And there might be a lot more of these workers in these workflows running internally than we would have had in the past. And so we definitely had to take that into consideration when we designed the feature. And you mentioned you guys have to run workers earlier using the verbiage of, okay, the temporal server is running your schedule or what be it, it makes me think about where is temporal running. And I know in the last podcast we talked about, yes, it's just a reminder listeners, it's an open source technology, which is fantastic. 
and there is temporal cloud where you can you don't have to host your own you can go sign up you can get a namespace make your own cluster is what we're talking about right now schedules is that available ga and if not when is it going to be available for people to use yeah, so it's been, it's like in a production state for the open source and for the cloud environments. For the cloud right now, it's in a state that we call public preview. It's totally like usable. You're, we're happy to have people build stuff on it. Like I'm very proud of where it is at this point. And so, yeah, people should feel totally free to use it. And I know lots of people who have already heavily adopted it on the self-hosted side. And I've already built some stuff with it myself on the side. So um, I can definitely recommend it um, from the user experience point of view. Is our schedules now... Th- built into temporal this uh, the single binary that you guys have and really quick for anybody who doesn't know what the single binary is what is the single binary yeah it's now the single binary is like the og name we're now referring to it as like the temporal cli so the first answer is yeah schedules are definitely available and pretty much any part of temporal is available through the temporal cli uh, and so Temporal CLI is really, we're something we're really excited about. We think that in a way it's small, but in another way it's super huge because it, it makes it so much easier to get started with the technology and just develop with it locally, even after you've already gotten started with it. And it's a distributable binary, something that you can install via brew, download off of GitHub as like a zip and put into your bin folder. And it allows you to run all of the stuff that you would want to run with Temporal without any other dependencies or any other files or any other resources. And so in this one compiled binary, file, we have the temporal server. So like all the services that go into that, we allow you to basically use a database because we have a integration with SQLite. And so SQLite right, it runs as like an in-memory database for temporal in the temporal CLI. And all of that side of things, including like the initial sort of compilation of the server into the single binary is something that we were like gifted, which eventually became temporal CLI. And so temporal CLI became this way that replaces our Docker-based getting started experience and just allows you to install this thing with a command and then you have your ui you have your temporal server you have a database and you even have the entire temporal cli itself like the what we used to call the tctl and so you don't even need a separate tool to administer the cluster once it's started it's all just contained within this one package which is really convenient really convenient when you think about booting up a distributed stack to do local dev. It's never like, I, I hate if I look on some GitHub and there's a Docker Compose of 17 services, I'm just like, oh my God, one of these is going to crapshoot and then I'm going to not develop and I'm going to troubleshoot Docker. So it's beautiful to have the single binary experience. So you said this is available in Brew. I could just like Brew install. Is it Cask? No, it's just a straight up like top level. You can just Brew install. I think that right now we don't like the from having known this from personal experience, the path to getting on apt and like the more Unix, sorry, Linux like flavored packages, they're just harder. So we've actually started that process, but it just takes longer to get into one of the main distros in terms of getting your package there. And so that's something that we're working on. So for now, if you're like using proper Linux, you can just use like the curl. We give you a command, I think, on the getting started. But yeah, for Mac users, I don't know if we have Mac ports yet, but we definitely have brew. That's how I keep it up to date. So it works, works great. I, I love this. So we talked a little bit about what are what is durable execution, a little bit about the SDKs, a little bit about the single binary and temporal CLI, and then some bleeding edge stuff. What is coming, Ryland, that you can tell us about either in cloud that's already in the open source or something that just hasn't dropped entirely that you might want to ramp people up for? 
Yeah, I think so there's a few things. So I think one of the, there's two things that are coming pretty soon, at least in an initially usable state, which are workflow versioning and workflow update. So workflow update is the more straightforward to explain for sure. Right now in Temporal, we have these workflows that are these stateful entities or actors, you can think of them like that. So they're staying alive for a while and you may want to deliver messages to them or get information out of them. And in order to do that, we provide two separate functions, mechanisms right now. One are called signals, and that's a way to send data into a workflow, like send events to a workflow, but in a single direction. And then we separately support something which are called like workflow queries that allow you to extract data in a read-only fashion from a workflow. And if you have a running workflow and you want to have a request response style interaction with that workflow, today what you need to do is first send a signal and like also make sure that within the payload you give in the signal that there's some sort of like correlation ID. And then separately, you need to query that same workflow after you've sent the signal and like then get whatever the extracted result that event caused the workflow to generate is out of the query. And first of all, from a developer experience point of view, this is not fun. Like even if it works, it's just not an ideal way of approaching this problem. You have to be polling with this query to make sure that you get the result back from your workflow. And also from like a performance and usability point of view, it's very limiting because the latency of making two separate calls is much higher than if you could do it in a single round trip. And so you end up like basically limiting temporal for a lot of use cases because the latency is prohibitive for doing, say, something like real-time payment processing. And so there is like a real company that sort of inspired us to, to prioritize this feature that is trying to do real time, like swipe a credit card, run a workflow because of it. And they're like, look, the latency is too high. Like, how can you guys help us solve this? And the idea that we had and we've had for a while is this concept of workflow update. And so the idea is that it's a request response style primitive for a temporal workflow where you can basically send an event and synchronously wait for the result of whatever that event changes in the workflow state to come back before you basically finish the call. And this is something that was coming. It's coming in 121, which which at least for the open source, we have an initial build up now. And that workflow update, it massively simplifies a lot of communication patterns that users tend to do in Temporal and also enables this entire set of use cases where you may be latency sensitive and want to use Temporal for something like doing payment processing. So that's the first one. The other one, which is also as part of that same release, which I think is, if I had to guess, it's the biggest single barrier of entry to like succeeding with Temporal today, which is workflow versioning. And so the idea is you have these like workflows in Temporal, they're running potentially for a very long time. And you have this issue where you want to update the code of a running process. And that in itself is like a weird thing, because most software, you don't really think about, I want to update a running piece of software. Yeah, that's funky. It breaks my brain still. And I've been thinking about it for three years straight. And right now we have a, a solution for this need to version your workflow and change the code of a running piece of software. But it is if, if temporal is like a very complex and computer science nested thing, this is the temporal of temporal. It is like one of the most complicated, hard to grasp aspects of the entire product is the legacy versioning, which we call in workflow versioning. And the reason we call it that is that the way that we basically have solved versioning historically for users is that if you have a piece of code running and you want to update it, you literally have to instrument your code to basically say, hey, if you you started running and you were started running on this version, take this branch literally with if statements. And if you were started on this version, take this branch. And that way within the code, it can handle whether the process was started with one version of the world versus another. Even if you understood what I just said, it is even harder to follow when you're actually looking at the code and trying to understand which of the stuff matters anymore, which versions do I have running. And so it is just seriously one of the biggest headaches and frustrations for people who, who adopt the technology. You're basically get diffing running code. You are basically to get, exactly, yeah. It is, it is wild. It is pretty cool. So 
What we've done is we've inspired by a lot of people in the community. We are now providing a second approach. It doesn't replace because there's some cases where you really do want that legacy versioning. But in a lot of cases, in the most cases, this new versioning will be the default choice. And the reason it's so much better is that what you realize when you spend enough time developing with Temporal is that while some workflows do really need to be changed in flight while they're running, most of the time it's okay for you to let your workflows on an old version finish before you start workflows on a new version or like doing a more traditional drain that you would find in like a distributed system. And what this new workflow versioning approach takes, what the approach it takes is that it says, okay, when you want to make an update to this workflow, we're going to go ahead and make sure that there's a worker running and ability for it to receive these new workflow tasks on this new version. But until there's no old versions of the previous workflow code running, we're not going to get rid of these basically older workers and we're not going to touch anything about those old executions. And now instead of trying to change the code of a live workflow, we're just saying you just need to sequence the versions of your workflows and say, okay, like this is the legacy version. We're not going to start anything more on this. We're going to let them run and finish. That way we don't have to mess with them in flight. But now any new workflows to get started, we're just going to automatically start in the latest version and so on and so forth. And you can continue doing that and have quite a few versions running at a single point in time, if that makes sense for you. And it just generally, you you don't think about it. Like, almost at all compared to what you were having to do before. In most basic cases with Temporal, unless you're running a workflow that runs forever or something like that, this new versioning will just allow you to make changes and not really have to think about the way that you're changing the workflow code as much, which is really nice. Right, because before you had to think about the atomic pieces of your workflow code, and now you're just changing the damn thing and you're saying, hey, this run the old, what's your overlap policy? Think about schedules, right? What's your overlap policy here? How are you going to... How are you going to run? Stop that. So that's fantastic. You can have a zero downtime. Realistically, you could switch over to the new version. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. And we're a lot of the things that we're planning to like expand and build on top of that are things like um, what we call, you know, safe rollout. When you deploy a new version, what we can even potentially do is take some of the traffic that is reaching your workers and basically put those on like a separate set of infrastructure workers that isn't actually doing the real work for your workflows, but it's just testing to make sure that the workflows are compatible with this new version that you've deployed out. And so what that would allow us to do is say you put out a new version before you even start actually directing live traffic to it, we can run this shadow traffic on it and say, hey, does this break the compatibility or does this create any problems with what we expect from this workflow execution? If it does, it never promotes that new version to be like the latest version, uh, lets you kind of go and fix the changes before it actually rolls out. And if it looks good, it just automatically rolls it out for you. And then you don't even have to think about things at that level either. One, One thing I love that you guys are doing is you're keeping the primitive of the workflow and then building on it. And for the community too, it just makes it digestible and palatable to build because it's a men- this is a mental model that takes time to build. It's not something you just read and overnight you're good with. So it's fantastic to see the team moving in that direction. Okay, and just before we close out, Ryland, I know there might be an event coming towards the end of the year here in 2023 for people who are interested to learn more about Temporal. Indeed. Uh, So on September 12th through the 14th uh, in Seattle, uh, we are doing our second uh, annual Replay conference. Um, And so Replay is a conference which obviously has a lot to do with Temporal, uh, but it's also like, you know, generally about the like platforms and practices and sort of trends um, that are all going on in back back end software engineering. Um, and so, you know, it's a really, really, really exciting event. Um, last year's we were totally sold out um, and there were some of the most amazing developers and engineers, you know, talking about the stuff that they're building, um, you know, with and without Temporal. Uh, and I really feel 
feel like, you know, this year, um, in terms of like the speakers that we have lined up, I know we have people speaking from like uh, Datadog and AWS and Microsoft um, and obviously Temporal, Netflix, um, HashiCorp, um, like, you know, really, really amazing companies that I feel like represent a lot of the the amazing stuff that's going on with, you know, developers and, and technology right now um, already planning to speak and kind of, you know, have a presence there at the conference. And so there's just a really lot of exciting, um, you know, kind of topics and trends that, you know, you really don't have another place that you can go to talk about um, that happen at Replay each year, especially if you're into like, you know, uh, backend software engineering. Um, and so it's something that I know um, I, I definitely wouldn't miss. So last year you guys did Replay 2022. And where, where was that one located? Yeah, so it was also uh, it was also based in Seattle. Um, that's where like the majority of the uh, people in the company are still, and the and the founders. And so it just made sense, like at least um, philosophically, um, for the first couple of years to keep it local. And where can people sign up if they if they want to know where they can grab a ticket? We have a, a website, uh, temporal.io forward slash replay. Um, that's where you can go to, you know, um, buy tickets. And obviously, if you have any questions or anything like that, um, feel free to reach out to me or anyone else on the team. And I'm sure that, you know, we'll be happy to help you figure things out. If people wanted to keep up to date with you and your musings, do you write? Do you blog? Do you tweet? Mastodon? Where, where do you live? Generally, uh, I don't. I don't actively blog all that much right now. I do have a Twitter, uh, Tail Logs, um, but most of the time you can see me from the stuff that I post through uh, Temporal, either on my LinkedIn or on Twitter or on, uh, you know, like the various uh, platforms we have, like blogs and the community, um, you know, community forum, for example. Uh, So yeah, those are the best places to find me. Ryland, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for taking the time, talking to us about Temporal, not only the basics, but what's coming because that that's exciting especially the workflow version i i can't wait for that one for my brain it'll be great my brain too i appreciate it no it was it was lovely it was a great conversation i appreciate you having me 